So I invite you to open your Bibles with me there to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, and verse 45. We'll go all the way to chapter 20 and verse 8. You can find that on page 879 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Now, in multiple different ways, today's passage is going to make us wrestle with a question. It's a question that we sometimes find ourselves asking more or less to Jesus. Who do you think you are? And Jesus, in his love for us, in turn, asks the question, well, who do you think you are? And then how we answer that question has major implications for us and for others. And so with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, that's fine. Stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 19, verse 45, through chapter 20, verse 8. Church, hear the word of the Lord. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is something uniquely disturbing about having someone break into your house. And when I was a little boy, someone did just that while I was away at school. We lived in an old farmhouse about a mile from any neighbors. And the thieves had apparently been monitoring our house for a while to see when we were typically gone. And it so happened that one day my mom came home early from work and she found the living room window broken open. And one of my dad's rifles missing from his gun cabinet. She immediately ran to the phone and called the police. And then thankfully she decided to leave the house instead of inspecting it for more damage. And I say thankfully because we found out later the intruder was still inside. And he was hiding just on the other side of the wall from the telephone. And he was holding that loaded rifle. 
for a long time afterward in that house, and in some ways, when I think about it still today, it just feels violating. That person, whoever he was, came in like he owned the place. He took things that didn't belong to him, like all the cash from my Ninja Turtle piggy bank. It wasn't right. And we had good reason to be angry and to want to drive him out and straight to jail where he belonged. How relevant to today's passage. Jesus has just ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem on a colt, which is symbolic of a conquering king. People lay down their cloaks, it's like a red carpet, and they shout, Hosanna, God save us now, giving him glory. And so we see in Jesus this this great joy. And then he arrives and he begins to weep over Jerusalem because he knows that they are about to reject him and that the city will soon be destroyed altogether. Not one stone left upon another. And so we see in Jesus this great sorrow. And then he goes first thing to the temple and finds it not filled with the business of worship, but with the business of commerce. The temple is God's house, and yet inside are thieves who are acting like they own the place. And so we see in Jesus this great anger. Which, as a side note, this, I think, shows us so clearly when you read these three sections together. shows us so clearly about Jesus' emotional life. In the course of hours, he allows himself to experience extreme joy, extreme sorrow, and extreme anger. And so surely Jesus is like a house for the full scope of human experience. Back to the context, it's bad enough that people are violating God's house, but it's an absolute travesty that when Jesus drives them out, they basically respond by saying, How dare you! Who do you think you are, Jesus? Except they do it in this form of the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning. We ourselves ask Jesus, young disciples, you need a couple of words there. We ask Jesus, who do you think you are? So let me explain that. We begin reading in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were sold. First of all, there's significance in Jesus going to the temple first thing and then remaining in the temple to teach every single day of Holy Week leading up to the cross. Now, I'm going to be pulling a lot this morning from something called the Bible Project and their video on the temple, which I would recommend to you is a fantastic way to spend five minutes of your life. I watched it for like 30 minutes of my life this week over and over, and it was really amazing as so much of what they produce is. So first of all, God originally created in such a way that the entire world would be his temple. A temple is simply a place for God and humanity to intersect, to know one another, to be together. However, he set the first man and woman in a garden in the center of that world where he would come and walk with them personally. So the principle here is kind of like the most famous person in the world. Anybody know statistically or want to give a shot at who might be the most famous person in the world right now? Kardashian. 
Mary, so would you, Harry Styles. I thought you said Mary Styles. I don't know who that is. Harry Styles. Good guess. Anybody? Beyonce. Beyonce. Hey, that's a good guess. Okay, we can keep going all day, but nobody's going to get this one. It's going to blow your mind like it did me. Dwayne Johnson. The Rock. Did somebody, did somebody over here, you knew it? You are, oh, you didn't know it. Okay, you're just joking. Okay. So here's the principle. Dwayne Johnson apparently is known all over the world, but his concentrated presence is centralized only in one place at a time, where he is. And so this is kind of the sense that we get with God's omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times. And yet he chose to concentrate his presence in the Garden of Eden. But when the first man and woman rebelled against God's rule, the garden form of the temple completely broke down. The man and woman were removed from it and it was guarded by a flaming sword. And so in choosing Israel to be his people... God, it shouldn't surprise us, gave them instructions for a new temple. One that would be full of decoration, reminiscent of a garden. You see, he is the all-present God, but his concentrated presence dwelled with them at the temple in Jerusalem. There, he would walk with them personally. There, seekers from all nations could come and worship and pray and be accepted. And so for Jesus, as the Son of God, it's just like what he says when Mary and Joseph lose him. Remember that story? They lose him. And he's found where? In the temple. And they're like, who do you think you are treating us like this? And he replies, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be where? In my father's house at the temple. And so when it comes to the temple, my friends, Jesus owns the place. Which begins to explain why he's furious when he finds it being violated. Now how exactly was it being violated? Well, you see, the Old Testament actually gave provision for there to be the sale of things needed for worship at that time to make sacrifices like animals, wine, oil, salt. And so the way that you came to worship at the temple wasn't just to pray and sing and hear God's word. It wasn't like a big church conference that everybody came to from their smaller churches. It was the one place that you came in order to offer sacrifice for your sins. Tim Keller explains it this way. Let's say that one day you woke up and your child had disappeared and taken all of your credit cards. You don't know where that child is, but you do know what that child is up to because you see all these charges coming into your bank account. And it's not good stuff that that child's doing. And then one day, out of nowhere, that child comes home, walks in the front door because she has a key, sits down on the couch, goes to the fridge and starts eating food like nothing has changed at all. What are you going to do? You're going to be like, man, we're so glad you're home and that you're alive. But we got to talk, right? We got some things we need to deal with here. Like there has been a breach and there needs to be a repair before we go any further. And the temple was the place to come and acknowledge the breach between you and God and to seek out the repair. The problem with the traders and the money changers and the buyers was they were inside the temple. 
They were not contributing or facilitating worship and prayer. They had straight up taken its place. So think like walking into a cathedral to have this quiet moment of intimate prayer with God, but instead the atmosphere is like a county fair. That's what we're getting here. And that's no place for a broken relationship with God to be repaired, is it? And the business, the business of commerce here had become so central that in the name of religion, you could get rich by taking advantage of poor people. So no wonder Jesus said in verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. Young disciples, there's a word for you. But you have made it a den of robbers. Young disciples, you need those two words as well. Here he quotes from two different Old Testament prophets. The first is Isaiah, where he's describing God's temple as the place where not just Israel can come and seek the Lord, but the whole world, anybody who wants to know the Lord. And there we read, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain in Jerusalem and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So this is why built around the holy place of the temple was something called the court of Gentiles, those who are outside the nation of Israel. But guess where these traders are most likely set up doing their trade? Right there in the court of Gentiles. Which brings us to the second prophetic quote, this one from a guy named Jeremiah. In the context, Jeremiah is blistering Israel because of these temple practices that they are doing. It's like God is saying, like, you thieves didn't just break into my house, but you've decided to stay. You've turned my holy temple and to an evil lair. And yet Jesus goes more than prophetic here, doesn't he? Like Jeremiah is satisfied to whip people with his words, but Jesus, he whips people like literally, right? He, John's gospel tells us that he stopped and wove together. How long does this take? Wove together a whip made of cords. Y'all, that is premeditated wrath. We think about this warm and fuzzy Jesus view that we have, and tender as he was, we experience him here, and we may be tempted to say, How unchrist like. Like, Jesus, who do you think you are treating people like this? Can you imagine Jesus walking in to our gathering this morning? driving people out with a whip that he himself has made. We don't have a category for that, and yet it's right here in all four Gospels. And certainly, this was the response of how unchristlike. This was the response of the religious leaders and the political leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? In other words, 
What gives you the right to come into God's house and act like you own the place? And though it's not asked in the right spirit, it actually is a valid question, isn't it? Like, because here's the thing. Like, there are only two options with what's going on with Jesus in the temple here. One, either Jesus is a total lunatic who is blaspheming and desecrating the holiest place in the world. That's one of the options here. Let me give you an example. I know a guy who is in the Muslim quarter of a remote town in East Africa, and thanks to a stomach bug that he had caught, he suddenly had the urge to immediately go to the bathroom. Now, you've traveled, you know that feeling. You know what I'm talking about. So in a frantic, he ran down an alley, dropped his pants, and relieved himself. Okay? But if that wasn't mortifying enough, he suddenly began hearing behind him angry shouts. Okay? In his horror, he came to realize that he had just desecrated the entrance of a mosque. Like, is that effectively what Jesus has done here at the temple? Desecrating, dumping on a holy place, we might say. Like, if he's just a man, then he is a lunatic. And they have a right to ask this question. It's either that or second option, Jesus is the Lord God Almighty himself. That's the only person who would have the right to come in and treat God's temple this way. And that's the source of his authority to act like this. He is the promised Messiah, which would mean that he can come into the house and he can eat anything in the fridge and he can rearrange the furniture and he can change the paint color because the house belongs to him. He can be furious and drive intruders like cattle out of the temple because he's the God who wants all people to be able to come near to him. And be joyful and accepted in his house of prayer. That's my Jesus. Now how does this have anything to do with us today? The temple no longer exists. Like we don't have to go there to worship. Is the application simply that no one is allowed to sell stuff at church? Like that's how this passage was always applied in my context. Youth group wants to do a fundraiser for a mission trip. No! We'll have to whip them out of here if they do that, okay? I don't think that's the only application. Here's where this business gets in your business. In your life, do you see Jesus as a lunatic who desecrates what you consider holy? Or is he the Lord himself who has the right to come in to whip things into shape? To get the house in order. Let me put some questions before you this morning. What has Jesus allowed to come into your life that you'd rather not have? Perhaps something that's interrupting the plans and the dreams that you developed for yourself. The timeline in which they would work out. Perhaps an ailment or a hurt that's left you broken, dependent, Kind of living life like an IV drip. God, you got to get me through today. Here's another question for you. 
What is Jesus driving out of your life that you'd rather be able to keep? Perhaps a a sin pattern that you keep reaping the consequences of, but you just love it so much that you just keep going there. Or perhaps a relationship or season of life that gave you great security and comfort and yet is fading away or even being stripped away. In either of those things, Jesus coming in or Jesus driving out, are you characterized by a humble submission to him? Are you experiencing the fruit that comes from handing over the keys to the house? The fruit of this great joy in having him ride victoriously into your life. The fruit of this great sorrow over the ways that your heart rejects him. Or are there angry breaches that have not yet been repaired between you and him? Is your posture toward him, Jesus, who do you think you are? And if that is the case, let me not use if, when that is the case, in my life and your life, Jesus lovingly in response has a question for us, doesn't he? And he asks us, well, who do you think you are? This is basically what Jesus is getting at when in response to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders in verse 3 of chapter 20, he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Here I see Jesus being both tough and tender. He's tough And that he ain't playing games with these haters. He doesn't just answer their questions so that they can indict him. Instead, he turns the question back on them to show that he's in charge of the situation. But Jesus is also being tender here. First of all, because he doesn't get his whip back out. That's what I would be tempted to do in this situation. But more than that, Because if they answer his question rightly, then they will be led to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and has the right. You see, the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance that is turning away from you being Lord and King and ruler over the house of your life. And an act of preparation for the Messiah was repentance, which John said the Messiah was Jesus. The one to whom everyone was prepared for. And to say John's baptism was from heaven was to get at the reality that Jesus also was from heaven. And the priests and the scribes, they were well aware of this because we read this in verse 5. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why don't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. A bureaucratic no comment. (laughs) Unlike Jesus, they are being neither tough nor tender. They're not tough enough to be honest and face the fallout from the crowd. Now, of course, they didn't believe in John or Jesus. But they didn't have the guts to stand up for their convictions 
And how ironic is this? The penalty for false prophets, according to the Old Testament, was being stoned to death. And that is the very thing that they are afraid of happening to them. What is that saying about them? But they're also not tender in this way. Their hearts won't soften toward Jesus. To hear his teaching and affirm his actions would be a step toward repentance. Young disciples, here's an answer to your question. They didn't want to answer Jesus because they didn't want to repent. And to admit the need not just for personal repentance, but for national repentance. And instead, they justify what's happening in the temple. And in so doing, they approve the dead spiritual state of Israel. This is good. We're going to keep it this way, Jesus. You can be on your way. Thus, in response, Jesus says in verse 8, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So the effect of this whole scene for anyone who's reading Luke's gospel, and especially the Jewish readers of that day, is to clearly see the contrast between Jesus and the spiritual leaders of Israel. They are not on the same page, are they? Jesus has essentially asked them the question, in the way you're going about this, who do you think you are? No, like really, like who are you thinking that you are? And they have essentially responded, here's who we are. We are the owners of God's house. We come in the window, we take what we want, and we will drive you out with a loaded rifle. Now, if you think that that's a little bit of a stretch, let's just look at verse 47 back in chapter 19. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And that may seem like pure, murderous thieves who belong in jail, and indeed they are. But it's the only other option if you choose to reject Jesus as the owner of your house. You may not do it in as brash a way or an ugly way, but it is the only other option unless Jesus is Lord God Almighty over your life. There is no neutral ground. Who do you think you are, Jesus asks us. Are you unable to be publicly honest about your need for a Messiah? To be able to say to others, I am broken. I need help. And the only help that will do is help from heaven itself in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you deny that repentance is necessary for you or others? Not that bad. They're not that bad. Surely God will be good to everyone. Do you justify yourself and affirm your spiritual state apart from Christ? If so, you are acting like you own the house. And I hope that you are mortified by the possibility of that and you are saying to yourself, how can I not be like that, Brad? Like, I don't want to go down that path. Well, Luke gives the answer as he continues in verse 48. How can we not be like this? Verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. The language here is literally to to like 
hang on to like cling to something for dear life. And the people were clinging to Jesus every word. And in so doing, here's what they were affirming. Jesus, you, you own the place. Jesus, you are God's concentrated presence. And when you speak, we walk with God. That's what they're affirming. That's what we're affirming when we gather around. And you don't just listen to me, but you listen to God's word. Say, man, when we hear this word and we obey it, feel the burning in my heart, we walk with God, the person of Christ. For us, brothers and sisters, we avoid being like the priests and scribes and elders when we lay down our loaded rifle and we come out and surrender. We say, guilty, I have put myself in God's place this week. Like, I have taken things that didn't belong to me. I deserve to be in jail forever. But I cling to Jesus for dear life. I hang on his every word. Well, what is his word? What is his word to hang on to today? That he will take us out in his authority and slaughter us? like we heard in last Sunday's passage? Is his word that he wields a flaming sword to forever keep us from God's presence? Ain't nothing changed since the garden. Here in Luke 20, the ironic thing is, he doesn't give us a word. He literally says here, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Instead, here's what he does give. His body. Words were not enough for Jesus. Just to come and preach to us was not enough. He gives his body. He allows the priests and scribes and rulers to find a way to destroy him and to pry the people away from hanging on his words. He surrenders to being jailed. They they take the whip and they violate his innocent body, don't they? He's driven out of the city. And there he's crucified between two what? Thieves. Later his disciples would remember all these things. And remember that he had said, destroy this temple. And disciples, you need that word temple. It's an important one today. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it back up. But he wasn't talking about that old temple, was he? He was talking about the new temple, where God's concentrated presence dwelled. Where's that? His body. You see, all his sons and daughters, they had disappeared from the house. They had taken the credit cards, and they were using them for Terrible things, creating a breach of sin so wide that only one thing could repair it, the sacrifice of God himself. And so in rising, he raises up a new temple 
three days in the grave for three days, raises up a new temple where seekers from all nations, including us, can come and worship and pray and be accepted and be joyful in his temple. He is that temple. And this is the gospel that he was preaching in the temple. So that everyone who comes to worship and pray at the true temple, Jesus Christ, they become a living stone in that temple. That means that they are given, guess what? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The same powerful authority that he wielded to boldly hang on to the gospel no matter what. And to do so in every expression of emotional human experience. Crazy, crazy sorrow in your life, but you're clinging to the gospel in the midst of it. Unbelievable joy, joy that feels so good it must be sinful. But it's not because you're holding on to Jesus, you're clinging to him in the midst of it. Vicious anger over real injustice in your life that God doesn't tell you, you got to stuff down. But he can acknowledge true hurt and you're clinging to the gospel in the midst of all that emotional experience. Who do you think you are, barks the haters of the world? By what authority do you do these things as a Christian? And yet, if you have come to worship and pray at the true temple, Jesus Christ, then you respond like this. Like Jesus didn't speak out what the authority was, but he put himself by the power of the Spirit into people who would. Listen to what. They asked Peter the same question and he says, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And now there is salvation. In no one else. For there is no other temple. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, you come to the true temple worshiping, praying, giving up on your own rulership over the house of your life then you come before Jesus Christ saying, these plans and dreams, this body with its ailments and hurts, this sin pattern that I am letting go of, my relationships, my seasons, my security, this is God's house now. He's the owner, not me anymore. And so my friends, does that characterize you today? What about us as a church? Because to bring this thing full circle, the extent to which we surrender the house to Jesus is the extent to which people will come to worship and pray at the true temple. The people of Israel, if the traitors hadn't been there, then people could have gathered around to hear the gospel preached by Jesus Christ. But they weren't willing. Are we as a church willing to get out of the way so that people can come to the true temple Jesus Christ and not be distracted by us and our clinging to be Lord over the house as I mentioned earlier in the gathering I was mortified when my friend 
answered in response to my question, how is the American church different from the global church, said to me, well, there's not much prayer. Church, have we let our court of Gentiles fill up like a county fair? Are we too busy to pray and to fast? Brothers and sisters, let us not act like intruders, for we are not. We're not. You don't have to come in a window. You belong in God's house. His authority is upon you. And that is why this table is here to remind you every single Sunday. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples so this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, I'm gonna have you announce this with me. All right, church? Today we are announcing that in Christ we can say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Our invitation here today is for you to come forward to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice. That is, if you are a baptized believer, whether or not you are a member of our congregation, you are welcome to come. If you are here today and you are not a baptized believer, we want to invite you instead of taking this to take Christ. He has made himself available to you and in fact I believe he's called some of you by name even this week, even this day to respond to him, to come and worship at his holy temple so that you can dwell in it all the days of your life and onward to eternity. There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you in the quiet of the moment, in the rest that comes after hearing your word. Lord, your word comes to us and it cuts through us like a sharp double-edged sword. And yet at the same time, your spirit follows in mending things stronger than they even were before. And so let your people not come to you now limping, torn to bits, but let them come before you mending with confidence to your table, hungry, knowing that they are welcomed there, that they belong in your house because they've put their trust not in their own rule over the house of their lives and their bodies, but they've put their trust in your rule over it, your good, pleasing, and perfect rule. Lord, I pray over them that you would bless them as they come and that they would come obediently confessing sin, reconciling to one another, asking for prayer over the hard things in their lives. And I pray for those here today who have not yet made a commitment to follow you, that they would stop waiting and that they would come. They would come to the true temple that was torn down on a cross and yet raised again mightily from the grave. Thank you, Lord.
We pray this in Jesus' name.